I'm here today with Andre Carrier, the CEO of Eureka Casino Resort, a company that operates resorts and casinos in Nevada and New Hampshire. Eureka is the only 100% employee-owned com casino company in the U.S. Carrier began his career in the resort and gaming space, and he's had a series of interesting roles, including as COO of the Golden Nugget in Las Vegas. We're going to talk about all sorts of things. Andre, thank you so much for joining us on Road to CEO. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm intrigued to have a good conversation with you. Yeah, well, let's start right at the beginning. How did you get into the resort and gaming space? Uh, you know, I, I, I like to say I, I came to Las Vegas for three months, 30 years ago. Uh, and uh, so, I, you know, perhaps I'm as surprised as anyone um, to still be um, in the casino business in, in Nevada centric for so long. Um, I grew up in New England. Uh, I went to Cornell University and like so many other people in the hotel school, kind of there were a few companies that you thought you wanted to work work for when you left. One of those was Four Seasons. I had accepted a job with Four Seasons. Uh, I had gotten my hotel assignment. I was headed off to the Olympic um, in uh, Seattle, which at that time Four Seasons had flagged. Um, and another, uh, a former classmate of mine came out and he was doing a project remodeling what was then the Hacienda Casino on the Las Vegas Strip, which is, uh, you know, Hacienda was famously blown up um, and, and on New Year's Eve in 1999 in front of a national audience. And it just kind of, it was so disappointing. It just kind of tipped forward instead of blowing up. Uh, you know, it was a resilient bugger. Uh, and it is now, of course, where Mandalay Bay is. Um, and uh, so I, I went out there to, I said, well, geez, how, how long, you know, and I was kind of thinking maybe uh, if I only stayed for a few months, I could still start my job at Four Seasons in September if I was deadly wrong about this. Um, and uh, by the time it was uh, my due date to show up in Seattle, uh, we were so entrenched in projects across the United States as this was 1992 and, and gaming legislation was on the books in, in, in Iowa, Illinois, Mississippi, and the federal government had now um, passed, uh, you know, binding legislation to allow gaming on Indian reservations. Hmm. So, you know, by probably November or December of that year, we were actively negotiating uh, compacts uh, with uh, a couple of tribal nations, um, and we were... Uh, on file for applications and license for gaming applications in Illinois and Missouri and in Mississippi. And so I just kind of arrived at this seminal moment um, in in the casino industry across America. Um, and and the learning, because this is about learning, like, the learning that would come from that could not be replicated. So there's my Marvel Comics origin story. <laughs> That's fascinating. I'm now, Hacienda man, I guess. <laughs> so that that's fascinating. And do you have thoughts on so what what drove the the changes in the laws in the gaming industry at that time? I mean, I think you know, look, it was largely financial. I think states were facing um, shortfalls in budgets for all kinds of things, and I don't know that there's ever been a moment um, where um, you know there isn't a contemplation of how do we get more. Mm -hmm. I want more money for complete the sentence education for 
uh, social programming, for reduction of debt, for, you know, and, and so gaming turned out to be um, a promising and effective way to generate incremental capital. I mean, for, in the end, mm -hmm. it's voluntary taxation. Right. Not, not everybody will go to a casino, um, but under kind of the freedoms that we enjoy in our Republican democracy, some will. Mm -hmm. And um, those people will pay a tax um, and provide for everyone else um, in the social construct. So, um, you know, I'm kind of sitting to you in New Hampshire. I'm in New Hampshire today, mm -hmm. who, you know, perhaps has one of the most enlightened um regulatory constructs around gaming where gaming is charitable mm. where 35 cents on every dollar goes direct to a charity every day no carry through mm. no pass through from lottery so you know so it's not we're going to give money to um the new hampshire legislature or the treasury and then they're going to allocate it to social need mm. here in new hampshire um Today, it could be going to big brothers and big sisters, hmm. direct, and to Make-A-Wish, direct. Um, and it's not insignificant money. It's 35 yeah. cents on every dollar um, at table games. Um, uh, so poker, blackjack, roulette, 35 cents. And, and on historical horse racing revenue, it's about 7%. Um, so those checks... You know, people usually have about seven to 10 days that their charity can be eligible each year. Those checks are now um, 60 to $100,000. That's pretty efficient fundraising for essential social programming. Absolutely. Um, so really enlightened. So, so gaming, you know, expands no doubt to answer some of the, uh, the needs, uh, be it societal or debt reduction or otherwise, or infrastructure. Um, and, and that is why, you know, in 1992, as I graduated college, you know, casino gambling existed in two states. And today, you know, just, we just got Utah and Hawaii holding out. <laughs> is that right? Utah and Hawaii are the last two. Yeah. Well, no lottery. No, I mean, yeah, that, yeah. that's like a no, 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 but you know, there's fascinating. There's some of something just about everywhere else. Right. So I have two questions about New Hampshire. So um, first of all, are they the only ones that have this direct pass through to nonprofits? Yeah. Um, I mean, there may be other States that have elements of it, but this by far is the most, um, you know, specific and adroit system of, yeah. of doing. Uh, I think it, perhaps anywhere. I, th I think in Australia, there's a bit of a charitable component to clubs um, there, but I think New Hampshire's got a fairly inspired construct. Fascinating. And is um, who get, who decides where the money goes? Is it? Yeah. So we get to choose the charities. So the charities get vetted. Um. And so they go through a process. Clearly, they have to be five hundred one c threes. But you know, more than that, they they get they get vetted by the state and by the lottery um, and by the AG's office. Um, and you know, and they have to have existed um, for some time. You, know, you can't like I'm going to open a charity tomorrow and you're going to fund right. Um, so they have to have some track record of mm -hmm. of doing good. Um, and then we enter into kind of the process of of selecting the charities. That's really fascinating. 
I'm yeah. sure that's a, yeah, that is, so it, it's also, it's interesting to me. I started my career as a press secretary for a member of Congress okay. and, um, you know, it's interesting. So I know a little bit about politics at the, the federal level and a little bit at the state level. And it's interesting because a lot of politicians would want to be able to influence where the money goes. They would rather get sure. it either in, you know, they'd rather put it into the treasury and then they get to yeah. decide what they spend it on. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm curious if you have any insight on that. How new, what was there, is that something that um, is talked about or is that a, was that a, was that an issue at all with New Hampshire? Yeah, or? look, I, I think, uh, of course, um, there were those discussions. Yeah. New Hampshire has a, um, you know, has a somewhat unique spirit um, around, so New Hampshire, by the way, uh, you know, not to get too much into that, but, you know, second largest practicing democracy in the world. Okay, the legislature, second largest. India, largest, second largest. New Hampshire. Okay. So there's a lot of people involved in the process of governance in New Hampshire, and they're all volunteers. Okay. There's zero compensation given to a senator wow. or a representative here. I think they get mileage um, right, driving back and forth in the state house. So, you know, this is like, you got to want to yeah. serve. Okay. Um, and I think one of the ethoses, and I'm not the best person to drill into it, but this is by observation, having lived here, grown up here and, and, um, and, and having a business here is there is, uh, a bit more of an ethos around the, the freedom to make, um, mm -hmm. individualized decisions, right. To trust enterprise, and to trust government in different lanes. Um, I think a lot of leaning goes into this idea of live free or die, um, which is the state motto, but I, and I, I don't wanna I don't wanna make it sophomoric. I mean, I do think that there's something to be gleaned from that, the idea of the freedom to make individual decisions and and for people to be trusted to make their own um, is part of the ethos. So in any event, New Hampshire, one of the first lotteries if not perhaps, and we'll have to Google it, if not perhaps the first lottery, maybe we'll Google it during our time together. Um, and um, lottery dollars go to a state education fund. And so those dollars were defined. And charitable gaming grew up in, in, in a way that um, they took kind of something that existed in many states, which is hey, the Knights of Columbus are going to have casino night for the church. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of third-party company came into the basement of St. Francis, and they set up some tables, and we bought some chips, um, and they put on a casino night, and $2,400 was raised for the Knights of Columbus, right? Mm -hmm. Existed a lot of places in America. And they said, what if we reverse engineered it? You don't have to move the tables around to the basement of St. Francis and St. Joseph's and St. Mary's and St. Anthony's. You stay in one place. But tonight, everybody who comes into the casino, they're going to get the, you know, they're going to be gambling for um, the Knights of Columbus at St. Francis. That was a you know, simple construct. And from that, they realized, geez maybe you can do a lot of good, which is what brought us here. You know, Very interesting. As, you know, as a core values-centric uh, company, one of the things that we're privileged enough to contemplate is this idea of do all the good you can for all the people you can 
wherever you can for as long as you can. Right. I mean, there's more to that mm -hmm. statement. Um, but that is unique to what we're able to do as two things. Um, initially, a 100 year old family business and more recently, a 100 percent employee owned company. We find ourselves often indulging in that contemplation. And so we encounter this opportunity in New Hampshire. We really looked at it through that lens. I hope you're enjoying Road to CEO. It would be great if you took a moment to subscribe, either on the YouTube page or wherever you happen to be listening to the podcast. And if you really like the show, it would be great if you leave us a five-star rating and write a review on Apple Podcasts. This will help more people discover the show, which will help us make more episodes. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Royku.com, which is our sponsor for the Road to CEO podcast. Royku.com provides a black belt style certification program for people who want to learn how to do Google Ads, SEO, and Google Analytics training. We use Royku.com to train our team at the Will Marlowe Agency, and so we love the program. And it has made onboarding new team members much easier and faster, and it also ensures that everyone on our team has an excellent baseline of knowledge for managing paid advertising campaigns. So head over to Royku.com and either check out the free training lessons there or sign up for the Black Belt program. Now, back to the show. That's fascinating. And I want to dig into, uh, there's two things, two directions I want to go here. One, I, I want to talk about the culture of Eureka, how, when it started and, and, and how it's evolved, but I'm also curious. So maybe we can return to, I'm not sure which of these two lines we, we should start with. I'm also curious because you, your career in gaming started in the early nineties. And so that means that that it was pre-internet gambling and internet sure. gaming. Yeah. And I am curious, um, how that has impacted things and how, and what is the influence of that on the trajectory of the casino industry? Um, so I, I'm curious, you know, do you, do you want to start with that and just see, you know, does that, does that have yeah, a, look, a role I, in, in Eureka? Is there an yeah, online I'm component? I'm definitely, I'm definitely represent kind of that generation that kind of took us from, you know, only bricks and mortar in, in, in a couple of locations, in the United States, I probably also represent that that beginning point um, for the the full generation of corporate gaming. Mm -hmm. You know, still some individual owners, but publicly traded, mm -hmm. public debt, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then I represent kind of the transcendence to the evident inclusion of online gaming as a central um brokerage point conduit for gambling yeah that's that's interesting so um where do you want to start to pull on that string you think well let's let's just why don't we start with the just the the overall influence of online gambling online gaming on the the brick and mortar industry sure um, you know, how does that, um, you know, how did that, how did that play out in the early days? And, um, you know, how does that, how does that affect the kind of the casinos that we think about today? Yeah. I think we got, when you look at the the beginnings of that, there's probably a couple different, uh, a couple different silos that are bringing it to maturity the fastest, right? One is poker, mm -hmm. um, and one is sports, right? I think those are the, the early adopters of, 
the um, creating a marketplace for casino gambling online, right? Those are the first two developers. And I think poker is seen as such a small component of what was then the revenue um, elements of a mature modern casino mm. um, that it was just clever. Definitely something to be attentive to. Need to understand it. Um, need to understand if there's any opportunity for us to monetize in it. Mm -hmm. But the federal government was pretty clear that intrastate commerce, when it came to actually using dollars, was illegal. Mm -hmm. And thus, as privileged license holders, it became pretty quickly, mm -hmm. there was no place for us. I <laughs> see. Right? Do one can't have the other, right? So this was a, you know, if there was a ghost at the door, he was definitely saying, stay out, right? Um, and and I think that was wise for many reasons, right? Because it does end up being a little bit of a root and toot and Wild West show hmm. of who's involved, um, how ethical those players are, how capable they were at um, accepting wagers, banking hmm. them, returning money, how long that would take, what were the fees involved? There was a lot to be worked out. Mm. The second piece is on is is online sports. Really, for the early aughts, even it is a contemplation and an actualization predominantly in Europe. Mm. Okay, so for some of the same reasons, uh, in this case, Congress had been very clear that intrastate um, sports betting was illegal. Mm. For some of the same reasons, it doesn't make sense for developers to spend a lot of time um, in the US markets. You can learn a lot more, do a lot more in the EU hmm. um, and elsewhere. And so that's where the development kind of takes takes off um, with, with still their own issues about governance and regulatory constructs. What those two, if I'm going too deep, pull me up. Okay. This is great. All right. What the two kind of, let's call them at that time, emerging markets prove is there's a lot of people interested in both. Mm -hmm. They kind of start to prove market size. And as we prove market size, um, it kind of requires a second look and then it probably requires some lobbying, mm. right? There is an opportunity now for at the state level and possibly at the federal level to tax this, mm. right? And generate meaningful. And like I said, you know, very rarely the, our legislative regulatory bodies, legislative bodies, not, not interested in more. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So this was now became an opportunity to find more. So Nevada adopts first poker, interstate poker. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's many conversations that are happening across the nation um, about sports. Shortly thereafter, um, the poker market in Nevada, it's, it's apparent it's too small. Mm -hmm. Having only one state doesn't give you the density mm -hmm. of play. 
to really meaningfully yeah. monetize. You needed these, these, the, the market, though big, was certainly national, probably global in order mm -hmm. to create it. New Jersey sees that and says, perhaps we should also include other games. At this time, you on Facebook as the predominant platform start to see play for fun casino games, mm. right? Social gambling. You know, it just it was like, you know, people complain about their kids often uh, when it comes to video games. And they say, you know, my kid wants to spend uh, $20 buying a skin or, a, you know, a, a dress code for his character on Fortnite. How ridiculous. Meanwhile, <laughs> um, we're watching play for fun casinos where people are using real money to get additional credits to earn po bonus points to get more free play. Uh, you know, it's kind of, hmm, right? Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So, so in a way, the market's being proofed again, this time through social media predominantly wow. as, as, the, as the marketplace. And New Jersey sees this and, and sets up a, a methodology by which to monetize it. And albeit probably slower in its ramp up than anticipated, I think it's a viable test. Very interesting. So that's ongoing right now where yeah. the, and so the law, so right now, and you, you mentioned there probably a need for lobbying and all that. So essentially the laws haven't caught up yet. And, you know, we are, you know, we're at a point where, you know, potentially we may see some, you know, some some states change their laws. And ultimately, we would need the federal government to change some laws yeah. in order to be able yeah. to collect tax revenue on this type of online gambling. And, and probably answer the question, who has the rights to the tax revenue? This is no mm. different than online retailing, right? Mm. So if I am sitting with you today in New Hampshire and I make a wager on a national platform of which where tax is paid um, on, on, on both fronts, you know, on the bet itself, on the winnings and on the player uh, winnings, you know, how does that get accounted for? Who has the rights to those incomes? There are, you know, there are questions that still, when you talk about something happening nationally or internationally, yeah. clearly regulatory questions that still very much need to be answered. But, you know, we're seeing sports betting, of course, state by state, both online and bricks and mortar, um, be uh, get regulatory approval. Yeah. Um, and so we're showing that the the access to wagering um, is growing. And of course, the revenue creation from it continues yeah. to expand. And the number of players in that space is expanding yeah. <laughs> as well, right? Well, I know that from my perspective, I've seen more advertising for uh, sports betting in particular yeah. um, over the past, I want to say six months to year. It's hard to say yeah. exactly, but, but you, know, you definitely see it being promoted around major sports events, um, you know, very heavily with video ads, that sort of thing, all digital. Um, and uh, so you can tell that things are happening. Yeah. Uh, and, and very similar to online retailing, there is a thought that owning the customer, at these early stages is what's most mm. important. 
and how much one has to spend to own the customer and to find loyalty is what the markets are currently testing. You know, there was a, you know, Amazon, um, if we were thinking about it, um, maybe even six years ago, maybe five or six years, we still would not have clarity on whether Amazon would have definitive ownership of online retail when it came to ownership of customer. Um, I think today we doubt that less. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, I think I, I yeah, I would I would agree with that completely. I mean, I'm not saying they do definitively. I'm not saying Walmart doesn't have another act. And I'm not saying that there aren't uh, specialty retailers um, where people go direct and maybe that will become only more pervasive um, in the years to come. I'm mainly making the observation yeah. that from a real share of the online market, um, Amazon does has made substantial inroads to own the customer. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I see that myself quite a bit. I mean, we see massive consolidation and the, the easiest consolidation in the retail e-commerce space can be seen at the smaller level. You know, Walmart still has a viable, you know, viable options, you know, Target, you know, there, there are big companies that have viable options, but um, it is much more difficult for the smaller operators to compete with Amazon in particular, uh, it's just too attractive. There's too many sales being made on Amazon. And you're, I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, that was not clear that that was going to be the case uh, 10 years ago, certainly five years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just gotten more and more. Uh, and there were some certain moments where you, you kind of wondered if, uh, if Amazon might lose some, some share and, and, uh, you know, that really has not happened. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we're going to watch the same thing happen in sports. Interesting. Uh, perhaps over the ta- same, perhaps over the same timetable, perhaps over an accelerated one. Uh, mm. But that's that's why all the advertising, um, that's why all the dollars are being yes. spent to try to get, uh, you know, a, a exclusive relationship with those consumers. You know, so it, it's interesting, and I'm not an expert at all in this field. That's why I'm talking to you. Uh, I will. I, I'll add though, there is another category of online service um, that does not have as much loyalty. And the you know the the category I'm thinking about would be you know ride sharing, and you know where you know people will have multiple apps. And um, and then and then they'll go with whichever one is more favorable to them. Or same thing with um, companies on Postmates. Exactly. Reads. I mean, it's a lot of there's exactly. a lot of punching still going on there. And now, um, you know, the restaurants are kind of fighting back um, and yeah. they're, they're getting a platform to go direct. I, I mean, I kind of start to follow Clover, mm. um, who has a pretty wide network of point of sales, cash registers, and a lot of small restaurants, independent restaurants all across America. And between Clover and Toast, you're going to be able to go direct. Um, and so, yeah, that that play may just be getting to the second act. <laughs> so I think we're, we're early yeah. on in that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Okay, so I, okay, I would love to, to segue now and, and, hear a little bit about Eureka and, you know, so you mentioned that it's a hundred year old family owned company or maybe not family owned anymore, but a hundred percent family 
well, yeah. run company. Well, oh, it's a fun, I'll give you a funny story about that. Yeah. So our origins is is a, as a family business and 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 a longstanding family business. And in 2016, after much research, predominantly revolving around this point of impetus, that you know we our hospitality divisions were now coming up on 25 years in business. So that meant a lot of our employees had been with us for some time. Depending on when they, how old they were, when they hired on, they were now closer to retirement than they were starting their careers. And we had about sixteen percent participation in four hundred one k. So, like many many hospitality companies, we had people who had had jobs with us for many years, but we were really nowhere closer to financial independence. Mm. You know, and and this this question kind of plagued us in a way um it's not uncommon in the industry um but we had made great efforts to encourage participation um and what we recognized was very difficult for people mm-hmm. to participate uh to have enough to believe that you have enough mm-hmm. to put something aside for retirement and so we began examining different ways forward and through it, you know, as if everything in life, you know, kind of someone comes into your life um, with some new experience and shares it. And as his friend shares this experience, my partner and I, Greg Lee, um, kind of listen to this going, <laughs> this is interesting. Um, and we start kind of really learning more about ESOPs, ESOPs, Employee Stock Ownership Plan, uh, mm-hmm. created by the IRS um, and the Department of Labor in the mid, um, in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, one of maybe the more divine, um, the, you know, constructs of both agencies. And and when you look at the, the purpose for them at the time and today, um, it's because prior to recently, one of the things we talked about very much in this country was that we didn't have enough money to fund the long-term social contract that is social security no. that at odds were these two, um, issues of a consistently growing national debt and a consistently growing long-term liability um, to seniors in our social construct, right? Mm-hmm. That had been that that had been a a uh, consistently batted about issue, right? We'll leave it at that. And so, ESOPs, in a way, are recognizing that, and they say, "Hey, so long as the purpose of your company is to grow shareholder value." for the long-term retirement benefit of your employees, you don't pay federal income tax. You take that money that you would have to pay taxes, and that's the cash that you use to pay people when it's their time to retire or when they leave the business. Mm -hmm. What people sometimes don't understand about um, ESOPs is they, they actually have portability unlike mm-hmm. some pensions, right? Some pensions, you know, it's you vest in year 20, mm-hmm. become pension eligible. If you leave in 19. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. ESOPs are different. If you leave the company, you know, I like to believe no one leaves this company unless situations uh, uh, outside of their joy and love of it uh, cause them to leave. But they got to go take care of their mom who uh, has fallen ill in Cleveland. And uh, after 10 years with the company and uh, they've got to go, they take their money um, with them. And so long as they put it into a defined retirement benefit plan, like an IRA, they pay no tax on it mm-hmm. until you know they retire. Um, if they take it and buy a boat, just like taking money every 401k, you pay tax and then some, right? Yeah. The government doesn't like you using money intended for retirement for things other than retirement. Yeah. So, so this ESOP vehicle becomes very attractive and understanding it. And we believe that this could be a difference maker. You could now take a hospitality worker who spends their life doing something I, I hope they like and enjoy. Um, and at the end of their 20 year career, they could have a meaningful reserve, mm-hmm. something that along with their social security um, allows them to live with less fear, more confidence. And so um, six years into that journey, you know, it's quite a, first of all, it's quite an accountability. <laughs> it's one thing you look at, well, quite an accountability. We've got over 600 people um, now in the company. Wow. And, um, over about, we're about over 500 of those people are in the ESOP, have to be here for a full uh, year. And um, mm. so it is appearing to be a way where people who are hourly wage earners can can earn enough shares um, to have certainly, this one's easy, certainly more money in their retirement than they ever could have imagined they would have been able to save in principle in their 401k, right? We could have simply never paid them enough to save that amount of principle. Right. And from a share growth standpoint, because they are actually getting shares and and get this, because mm. we want to know how ESOPs work and like the IRA, yeah. the OL, holy smokes, this one's going to be complicated. <laughs> get how simple this is. The IRS system and the DOL system says this, if you want to determine how many shares an employee gets, you take their pay as a percentage of total payroll in the organization. So the total payroll in the organization is $100,000. And John Miller earns $10,000. At the end of the year, when we distribute the shares, John Miller gets 10% of the shares. Straight ahead. Fascinating. complicated math. So, and that's that's 10% of the shares um, that are- Distributed that year. Okay, distributed that year. Companies can choose how long to distribute their shares over. In our company, we distribute shares over the long term, multi-generation, 30 years. Okay. We'll distribute shares for about 30 years. Um, So that's, and that was intended to promote longevity. When people retire or sell their shares back to the company, and that's all that happens at the, when you leave the company or you, um, oh. or you retire, you simply sell your shares back to the company. Company gives you cash, probably take that cash, put it in an IRA or something um, to get a, a turn on it. 
um, and so it can begin to provide income for you. And then those shares get returned to the pool to be redistributed. Fascinating. And, you know, so, uh, so far, so good. Um, when we look at the kind of dollars that people are, are earning, the share price is examined once a year okay. uh, by a third-party valuation firm. Um, and um, that share price um, is what is used for anyone leaving the ESOP that year. Mm. Um, the good news is, if you believe the ESOP be worth more in the future, people with a lot of shares actually sell their shares back to the company over as many as five years, um, so they can get the the ups, so to speak, as if the company is to be worth more over time, which is the hope. I see. So, and our employees, been, uh, you know, fortunate we were able to grow the business. I'm here in New Hampshire. We were able to add another business unit, and as a as a effectively a long-term retirement benefit, you want to be able to diversify the company, both yeah. geographically and within industry. And that's what we've done here in New Hampshire at the Brook. That's fascinating. I So I, I appreciate you going into some detail on on how the ESOP works. Um, so, and, and it's 100% employee owned. Is that right? So what is the, what's the biggest challenge with implementing this? You know, like just going back six years, because I think you said 2015 yeah. to Look, 16. Yeah. Education is the most difficult part administratively there's absolutely things you have to learn and learn to do well mm -hmm. educating yourself on what those things are takes time mm -hmm. and then educating the other uh educating all of the members on what it means turns out you got to explain it quite a few times and it's something you have to live a little bit right that first year you get your first esop statement you get a few shares not worth much more than when they were issued. I don't know if this is meaningful. Um, but after uh, six years of kind of getting together, talking about what it means and seeing that share price grow, seeing the number of shares in your accounts grow and seeing your overall value grow, you start to understand it. So education over time is the biggest hurdle. Um, I think I was circling back actually on, a, on the story I was going to tell you. Our company used to be called Eureka Casino Resorts, a family company. Mm. When we became employee-owned in 2016, my partner and I, Greg, uh, we, we say, well, this will be our great reveal. We're going to change the logo, and we're going to put Eureka Casino Resorts, a 100% employee-owned company. I mean, we figure we're going to put up this yeah. slide in the all-employee meeting. The bands are going to play. Angels are going to sing. <laughs> right. They're going to rise to their feet. So sure enough, we get to that slide. I click on it, show the new logo. Crickets. <laughs> Finally, one person brave enough, third row, raised their hand and says, does this mean we're not a family anymore? <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> wow. Dagger. Yeah. Dagger. Like, oh, wow. Talk about unintended consequences. Didn't think of that. Right. So their understanding of what it meant to be employee owned at that moment was this big. Their understanding of how we behaved and what it meant to be part of this family, you know, this big. And it looked like we had cut them out. And so we were like, no, immediately went right back to the, you know, the graphic art department changed it. Now it says Eureka, you know, a 100% employee owned family business, <laughs> which I presume we're the only ESOP with yeah. that as a tag, um, <laughs> uh, but it was very important to us culturally. Sure. Wow. That's, that is really fascinating. Um, so then the original owners, the original family owners, family. Yep. So, so then are they still involved? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, so, you know, Greg and I, uh, Greg's the chairman and uh, I'm the CEO. Um, you know, we've been at this together a long time. We've been um, friends longer. Um, and, um, you know, in many ways, this is, you know, the, our, our ultimate work in progress um, for the rest of our lives is kind of seeing this and shepherding this through to its best outcome. It's, you know, to say it's a unique platform as a, as the only one, uh, you know, is a bit of an understatement. Um, so, you know, it's incumbent upon us as the only one to see what differences should be exploited to benefit the business, benefit our community, benefit the industry, and benefit understanding. So really, it's incumbent upon us to um, to make sure we're thinking through all the time how these differences can make us better. Yeah. We have a mantra inside. We say, good, better, best. The St. Jerome prayer, good, better, best. Never let it rest till our good is better and our better is best. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's much to be done when it comes to this opportunity. Yeah, that that's really fascinating. Now, I okay, so I've got a question. I'm not sure if if uh, you'll you'll be prepared to answer this one, but with um, so you you've been with Eureka for a long time now. Before and after this change, has employee retention changed in any way since 2016? Are people staying longer, yeah. or maybe they were always staying a long time before? Yeah, look, this was a company where people joined and stayed, and we had done a lot to incentivize that. We were blessed. Um, to have it be that way. Um, pandemic comes in. And uh, I don't know if I've said that sentence that way, but pandemic came in. I think it, it sure did. It's an accurate in spades, statement. In fact. Um, sure yeah. And um, and we close and we go back to our core values. I say we're a core value centric organization. It says, you know, we serve um, our guests, community and one another with care, compassion and dedication. First thing we did was say, hey, how do we keep as many people with a paycheck as long as we can? Second thing we did is said, what's scarce um, and hard to get? Turned out all kinds of things were scarce and hard to get. So we opened up um, a food bank on property. Um, so people get groceries from us, from their company oh. every week, including toilet paper. Um, and because we believe in good, better, best, St. Jerome's Prayer, uh, we try to get better at that every week. And by the end, we had like the fastest drive-through grocery distribution system anybody ever seen. Wow. Uh, we're running it through the front valet, two lanes, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, so just, we just really spent time on that. Second thing we did was turned out testing was scarce. Mm -hmm. So in our community that we served, we improved testing capacity geometrically. Third thing that turns out was going to be scarce um, was... Uh, vaccine. Mm -hmm. And um, when we found out there was going to be vaccine, we realized there was no supply chain solution for how that vaccine went from vials to arms. So we built a best in class mass vaccination facility wow. um, at our property, the Rising Star. Uh, we did the booking engine, we did the marketing, we did the coordination with um, everyone from the National Guard who was distributing it, um, to the local medical um, and personnel who could administer it. We did the record keeping, the back end, 
um, and uh, you know it's um, and built the capacity to vaccinate probably in excess of uh, three thousand people a day if fully wow. deployed. Fourth thing we did was say, I think this could affect our industry forever, and we funded a million dollar prize for innovation to address those those issues, which were going to be short-term obstacles to returning to normal business, but long-term risk factors, because it should now be apparent this could happen again. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, with that million-dollar prize in partnership, we uh, were happy to work with the business school at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, which my partner's family endowed the business school there, the, the Lee Business School. And uh, boy, howdy, did we get some incredible products brought forward. Everything from uh, biodegradable sheets, so single-use linens. Wow. Berlin is still out there uh, today. You know, um, incredibly, you know, you know, it's funny things you do, but like the idea of we put our bodies on our sheets, we, we put our face on the, on the pillow. Yeah. The idea of a single-use pillow or single-use pillowcase that will only ever be unique to me. It's like how, how did it take the how did it take a pandemic to make that relevant? Um, <laughs> I don't use anybody else's toothbrush yeah, after they say true. I wash, right? It's like, just, yeah. I leave that for your audience's contemplation. <laughs> um, to now, what is the most advanced um, uh, air filtration system, um, and uh, which uses a, a process called photocatalysis um, to not only capture. Um, viruses in the air but kill them so nobody has to clean that filtration at greater risk to themselves wow um so the we do all those things and what do we find out at the end not everybody wants to come back to work yeah uh and some for risk some because they noticed that there were lifestyle changes they needed to make so i think we along with others have found that you know turnover is higher, recruitment is more difficult, and so it was incumbent of us to find ways to accept this yeah. and behave accordingly. Okay, people needed to be paid more. People needed greater flexibility in their work lives, and I hope capital H, capital O, capital P, capital E that a purposeful life of work will continue to be important. And I share that hope. That's what this, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. look, I think there's both. I mean, I don't, I don't, this isn't to say that family life isn't important or central. Your own journey of life is not central. But your contribution to coworkers, community, along with yourself, something larger than yourself could do individually. Yeah. That collaboration, I hope, continues to be important. I yeah, I think that's really well said. I agree with that. I think, and I I think that it is. I mean, I think for our identities and our self-esteem i think that having an a a a meaningful work that you're able to where you you can see a contribution that you're making i think that's a a critical thing for people now we are at a moment where 
so many things have changed. And I do see certainly in my business, which is very different, you know, it's a, it's a professional services organization that provides advertising to people. Um, but in that scenario, you, there is more flexibility than there was before. There's more now in my type of business, you can work in a distributed manner. And so the flexibility is easier to come by without that flexibility. I would imagine that I would have seen more turnover than I have um, simply because I think, I mean, clearly some people have changed some of their preferences and even if they don't want to work from home all the time, they now seem to need to work from home more often. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you, you put something in that need want. Yeah. we got to recognize that those people who now need, not just want for some people who just want. Yeah. May not need. No, I think that's, I think that's exactly correct. And, and that that's, that's exactly right. Um, and so I think a business like mine, where you don't have the, uh, where, where you can, it's, it might be a little easier to balance that because it's not on now, but it sounds like you are still, making those changes because you, you said flexibility. So how, so how does the flexibility work in a business like Eureka? Yeah. Look, if there are those positions where you can work remotely, you can work somewhat remotely over time. Um, you should examine what those are and if they can be done well, you should get busy doing them. Yeah. Um, and in customer facing areas, you have to accept, um, you know, what can't be, and you have to examine things like hours of operation You know, what can you actually mm. do well? Um, in a, you know, Las Vegas from, you know, reputation 24 seven, um, 365. I don't know. Walk around Las Vegas right now at two o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday. See if it feels the same level of 24 mm-hmm. seven. Yeah. Maybe we had to make some compromises. Yeah. Maybe the level of service we can provide at three o'clock in the morning in a coffee shop or in a, in a restaurant or a bar is, is not what it once was. Perhaps those are some of the concessions that you begin to make. I spoke to another casino executive who told me that they've another change that they made was that uh, individual employees now potentially have broader portfolios. So one person might have, let's just say, five new responsibilities that they might not have had before. So the hours you know, that's not a reflection of the hours they work. It's just that while they are working, they may have to do things for other, you know, that, that, yeah. that might've been somebody else's responsibility. I love the way you said like portfolio of accountabilities. The answer to that question is yes. Yeah. I think that is occurring. I think that the examination we have to do is that may have been to some degree how we got in the jam that we did, hmm. which is to say, you know, one of the predominant, not the only, one of the predominant ways industry, entrepreneurship, monetized themselves over the last 40 years was acquisition and consolidation, Mm. right? Mm. M&A. And it was very rare that one of the levers that was pulled to increase the monetization was not rifts, reductions in force, consolidations Mm -hmm. of accountability. Um, And we often probably created constructs by which we asked people to do two jobs and paid them only 12 to 15% more. Mm-hmm. Now, someone's going to watch this and say, man, that carrier guy, he is going out there on a leash. To which I'd say, perhaps, perhaps not. Okay. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it's just an observation that mm-hmm. to some degree has some level of thought associated with it. 
And it's some degree why some people have lost enthusiasm mm -hmm. for work. One of the other things we did was we said, hey, you know, uh, you can have a ping pong table, um, but you can't have a supervisor's only ping pong table that is much better than the ping pong table everybody else has you can't have a much better foosball table uh, mm -hmm. in the in the manager's lounge mm -hmm. why do i say this perhaps over a generation or so we discouraged people from wanting to be promoted mm. advancing a lot more work well where are all these fringe benefits that got well we can't do that anymore you got to give about the same, about the same. So yeah, now you have to take calls when you're not at work. Now you have to mm -hmm. fill shifts when people don't show up. Now people have your phone number. Now people can text you directly. You have to listen to concerns and complaints from customers and guests. You're the one that really is going to take it. I'll pay you a little bit more money and well, not much else. Someone watching this is going to say, that carrier guy, boy, I'll tell you, he sure is. And I'm going to say, perhaps. But perhaps this is some of what we have to contemplate going forward to encourage people to work conscientiously in introductory level positions so they can continue to advance, so they can have access to the better life that they aspire for through good work and perhaps those other positions as you move over up the ladder shouldn't just offer more work yeah but should offer more access to a better life perhaps i think i think you're onto something i mean it sounds like <laughs> sounds like you're onto something perhaps <laughs> that's that's very is very interesting um so, okay, so what's around the corner right now for for Eureka? I mean, it, there's been tremendous change. Yeah. Uh, even if without COVID, it's only six years into this to the, the employee yeah. own, you know, you know, initiative. Really um, important that you said that. Yeah, we have to continue to do better all the time. <laughs> so I'm sitting here in New Hampshire where we're probably about 70% done with a remodel where we took a business that had become less relevant an old Greyhound track in New England, okay? On exit one in New Hampshire, so the, literally the Massachusetts, New Hampshire border. So if you, for those demographers at home, okay, playing that, this 30 minute to 40 minute drive time, one of the greatest densities in America, right? And we took a business um, that had become predominantly irrelevant. Greyhound racing had not occurred mm -hmm. here for over 16 years, a little bit of paramutual wagering. And we've turned it into um, the largest charitable casino in America. Wow. The largest charitable casino in America. We generated over a million dollars for essential charities just last month. Wow. Now, if I was Tom's shoes, people would be wildly enthusiastic about mm -hmm. that. Right. If I was giving yeah. away a pair of glasses for every pair of glasses, I saw people would be wildly enthusiastic <laughs> about that. It's, that's incredible. Yeah. That's, that's, I was no, no question. And I was given 1% of my revenue to promote peace. Be wildly enthusiastic. 
$7 million have been generated in this building for essential charities since we took over in 2019. $7 million. Wow. Along with funding the long-term retirement benefits of everybody that works here. Now, if I was selling coffee beans, people would be wildly enthusiastic about that. Water. But perhaps because I'm a casino guy, <laughs> people are less enthusiastic. But perhaps they ought to be a bit more contemplative about this model. I would agree with that. I mean, I think the more I hear about this, the more I, I can see the the uh, the immense benefits of uh, of structuring the way you have. And I can see the value of these laws that are that that you know, get the, that, that direct the money to the charities. I right. think this is, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And by the way, like charities aren't, you think about a small charity we'll do because we're almost, I know we're coming up on our time, but small charity in order to get access to large dollars to make a uh -huh. big impact usually has to file grants. Right. The dichotomy of that is that means they need someone sophisticated enough on their staff to be a grant writer or they have Correct. to be a third party consultant to write that grant. And I'm not saying writing those grants isn't really purposeful. And there shouldn't be times where people explain exactly how they're going to use their proceeds. But in this construct, those small charities can put forward their plan on how they intend to use their funds and get access to sixty dollars to $100,000. That means when Make-A-Wish comes in at $10,000 a wish, they're here, they're getting passive action, yeah. and they're getting 10 wishes. It's remarkable. That That's, yeah, and and I'm I'm very familiar with, with different charities, and those grant writers are expensive. Those are, yes. you know, I mean, really it would be- people. I mean, yeah, I mean, and 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 it's it's going to end up probably bottom line costing about a hundred thousand a year to have somebody on staff writing grants, doing all that, and and I, you know they bring a lot of value, and there you're right, there are there is some value to the grant writing and the grant processes, but that rules out smaller charities that could be very deserving, up and coming. So it is nice to have access to cash for grant for nonprofits that don't have yet. A grant yeah. writer and some of those small charities can be really adroit if really what they're about yeah. is getting people rides to hospitals in rural locations where it's too far and they don't have a ride otherwise that's like best done by neighbors who got people who will pay for their gas and buy them lunch on the way back okay great go <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, I, I and I also agree. I think that that I'm sure that you would get more attention if it was if, if you were selling recycled shoes or, or something, <laughs> you know, I uh, say no. And I'm not yeah. I, I think yeah. Tom's may be a great shoe. And I'm sure it Bonobos is. may be great socks. And I, I mean, I, all those. And I, yeah. and I encourage those those other business models. I just think, you know, I, I do find it funny that, you know, uh, millions of yeah. dollars into our journey and being the largest charitable casino in America. I don't even think the local newspaper in New Hampshire has written about us. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of mind boggling right there. Well, we'll leave it, perhaps, perhaps uh, not. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think um, as a former press secretary, I, I am somewhat critical of how the news media chooses to report. So I'm a sympathetic ear on that front. Um, yeah. I, I think, I mean, there, there's obviously a very newsworthy element to all of this. I mean, there's multiple newsworthy elements. It, and and I don't want to get confused about this is not for our own edification. This is not for our own advertising. This is not for some other ego need to to be um, to be addressed. It is because perhaps this business model, perhaps ESOPs, yeah. may be right for another company, maybe right for another owner in industry. Yeah. And what they need to see is a successful model of it, and yeah. perhaps they'd consider it. Are there, um, do you see any any movement of other, either casinos or other companies? Look, there are only about 3,000 employee-owned companies in the United States in totality, 100%, 100% employee-owned uh, companies. Um, the ESOP Association could be great statistics, as does the, the NCEO, um, which is the National uh, Association of ESOP Owners. Mm -hmm. I can give you the statistics on growth. I don't think there, um, I don't think there isn't growth. Um, I just don't think that it um, it's a it's a prime time discussion. Yeah, perhaps it should be. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, OK, so I guess my last question on this um, on the, the ESOPs is, uh, is there a certain size of company that you think may, we're, we're converting mm -hmm. into an ESOP makes a lot of sense? And then are there other yeah. sizes where that doesn't make sense? Yeah, so there are many professional organizations that you'll find that are ESOPs, engineering companies, architectural firms, mm -hmm. design firms. So there's a whole host of probably 60 uh, to, to 100. Um, I think the, the largest ESOP in America is, is actually uh, Publix, the hmm. grocery store chain. Oh, okay. Now you understand their name a, a little bit more. That's true. Um, and uh, so I, I think that... Um, there is probably less presence of ESOPs among companies, 500 employees or more. Mm -hmm. um, I think mm. there is a, you know, th there should not be a governor. I think it is mm -hmm. a place where private companies should go to say, when I look over the next 30, 50 years, how could our business do the most good? Mm. And I'm not saying it would be ESOP, becoming an ESOP. I'm saying perhaps our company and others have done enough good to compel you to evaluate it. Well, you've convinced me. I'm, I'm certainly going to be uh, spending some time looking for others in the ESOP space and uh, and just and just looking into it. I think it's I think it's a fascinating model and I think there's a lot that you can learn from it. Oh. We're we're always you know I'm I'm always excited to uh discuss it and discuss the possibilities. That's for sure. Yeah. Now, okay, so just one more question on the future okay. for yeah. uh Eureka. So, you mentioned the converting the the Greyhound track yeah. and now it's a a very successful new operation. Yeah. Is your model moving forward for is your growth model to identify kind of undervalued or um you know other kind of gaming properties and then rehabilitating them, acquiring them, and uh, and uh, and and relaunching them. Is that is that a big part of what so the future? Core values go back to them, 
you know, we always have to continually, uh, continually improve. So that means you have to continually improve the products you have. You can expect a lot from our Eureka property in Mesquite um, mm -hmm. over the next three to five years to get better. We'll continue to get better here at the Brook. Um, and then continual improvement means also um, uh, evaluating and embracing the changes in the market to further diversify the company um, so that our employee owners have that uh, have, have better balance in their retirement plan. So we'll continue to kind of seek other opportunities in, in, in our broader hospitality segment and perhaps look for areas where bringing a hospitality mindset to an industry mm. could improve it. So, um, you know, we're a hundred year old uh, family business and the only ESOPs or a 100% employee owned family business. I think you can uh, expect us to be working hard for a long time to get better and better. Andre, thank you so much for joining us on Road to CEO. How should people uh, reach out to you if uh, if, yeah, if they uh, want to reach out interested. to me? Uh, the easiest one is uh, Andre at EurekaMesquite.com. Andre, A-N-D-R-E at EurekaMesquite.com. We'll put that up in the show notes if anybody wants to reach out. Uh, thank you again. This has been a very enlightening discussion. Hey, I enjoyed our chat. We'll do it again. I'd love to have you back. All right. Well, all the best. Okay. Bye for now.